The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. That is not supposed to do that. That was looping this way, not supposed to do that. So anyway, <laughs> welcome to Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald, and today we've got a great show for you today. We're going to learn all of Well, uh, uh, first of all, Jennifer has been on the show before, and you can go to positivetalkradio.net, and you can find out more information about her and the work that she's doing, and also the book that she's written, which is called The Bullied Brain. Uh, heal your scars and restore your health. Um, it's it's a vital important, vitally important book uh, because uh, as we're going to discuss today, we don't talk about the brain much. We don't talk about brain health, and uh, we just kind of it just kind of sits there. We talk about epilepsy, and we talk about everything. Well, no, we don't talk about ep ep epilepsy like we should. I was <clears throat> I was going to say something like we talk about broken legs and and stuff like that, but. Uh, but the things that go on with the brain, we don't necessarily talk to. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me on the show again. Well, you are a, you're a PhD, which makes you an educated person, and you know a lot about the brain. And, and it's why is it do you think that we don't really, and really never have, talked about the brain much? Well, that is exactly the question I pose to myself. So I had been a teacher for 20 years. I taught at university level. I taught at college. I taught at high schools. And I had two children. And lo and behold, I, I hit the wall in a, a bullying situation where I suddenly began to realize that even though I was in the business of teaching and I have a PhD in comparative literature, I did not know anything about the brain. And I was like, how is that even possible? How come I'm not taught it when I was in school? Why wasn't I taught about it in my master's program or my PhD? How can I be a teacher in the business of learning and the, the organ of learning is the brain? And so that's why I set about um, trying to figure out really sort of what are environments that are conducive to brain health and for brains to be high performing and to really flourish and what are environments that we create in our society that are very destructive and limiting to the brain. Because I was trying to figure out, you know, we live in a society and culture that dismisses a lot of bullying, especially done by adults. We say, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, it's just tough love, or it's just a, a tiger mother. We have all these different terms that we use. 
um, that kind of condone and enable bullying behaviors. And so I wanted to look at it from sort of inside the skull. Is that true for the brain? Is it healthy for the brain to be bullied or is it really destructive? That was kind of the big question I set myself. And what did you find? Well, um, really, honestly, the information is shocking and it's shocking that we don't know more about it. So this is why I wrote The Bullied Brain. I wanted readers to understand that we've kind of, what, what neuroscientists say, um, some of the leading most important neuroscientists today, including Dr. Michael Merzenich, he says we've been sold a false bill of goods. And that false bill of goods is to believe that we're sort of born a particular way. Our brain is the way it is and it's hardwired and we're either talented or we're not, we're a good person or we're not, we're bad, or we're, we're not really smart or not really a good athlete or we're super good at it. You know, all of these kinds of constructions are false. Basically when we're born, our brain has not developed. The, the human child's brain is not developed and we have what's called brain plasticity or neuroplasticity. And this is the capacity for our brain to grow and change and become stronger. That same neuroplasticity means that our brain can shrink, can be undeveloped, can lack uh, connections, can not integrate properly and can get weaker. And it hinges on the environment that we're in and it hinges on what we practice. So we have neuroplasticity, this ability to change our brains, to make them stronger or weaker until the very last day we are on the planet. And so as Michael Merzenich says, we have soft wired brains, which is an amazing thing. It means we have incredible empowerment over our own lives. Even if we've been thrown some lousy situations, our brain health and our brain performance is so uh, connected to what we do and what we practice and how we feel and think that we can make incredible changes to our brain. And so it's exciting. So that actually is, that's interesting because that really plays into uh, things like free will very, very well, don't they? Well, you know, I, I really, my heart goes out to children because children are in positions where because they lack power and they lack knowledge, they lack knowledge about their brains because the adults in their world don't know much about their brains, even let alone children's brains. Um, they really can't exercise their free will and they can't keep themselves safe from toxic environments. And they can't, you know, escape from adults who are abusive until they get older. And by that point, a lot of damage might have been done to the brain and that sets them on a really unfair path. And this is extremely well documented in research. So my big, my big passion, my goal, my mission is to get this information into the hands of parents and lawmakers and teachers and coaches. All of us have to work together to really get up to speed on brain health and brain performance and how to enhance it and ensure that we're not making really bad mistakes because of our own training and believing that we're doing the right thing, but we're actually doing damage to the brain because it's invisible. You cannot see it. You know, one of the things that, and we were talking about this before, and now's an appropriate time, I think, to bring it up. And that is motivation or lack thereof. Um, from your standpoint, that comes from the brain. Is that right? Well, the way I, I try and 
articulate this and, and help readers in the book is I talk about how, you know, it's one thing to learn something. So let's say I wanted to learn how to cook. That would be fine. I'd go into the world, I'd take courses, I'd read recipe books, I'd, I'd watch shows, I'd listen to podcasts, I'd learn how to cook. That's one thing. What you have to do if you have a bullied or abused brain is you have to unlearn. And unlearning is hard. It is really hard. The, I think the best analogy for it is really trying to get into good shape. So if you have been sitting around watching Netflix, it's really hard to get motivated. It's hard to kind of, you know, light that fire and have activation energy and what really are you doing in my house? get out there. And, and when you start, <laughs> when you start, it's really hard. You have to change yourself. And so when I talk about it in the book, I use a lot of um, examples and uh, ways of thinking that have to do with like disobeying and revolting and rebelling because we've been raised in a society that has told us to ignore our brains, doesn't give us any information about our brains, doesn't tell us how to work with our brains. And as I point out in the book and I unpack, many of us have grown up believing that bullying and abuse are a necessary evil for greatness. We believe that the person has to be broken down, usually the child or the young adult, has to be broken down and then we're gonna rebuild them back better. That is a lie. It is an outright lie, it's a myth. There is no research that will back that, zero. Whereas there's extensive research that tells us that if you break someone down, you probably are breaking them, end of story. You are really hurting their brain. And, and it's gonna take them a long, long time to get motivated and believe in themselves again and get back on the track to health and well-being. And so I'm, I mean, the book, is very much a systems book. It's like we have to change our systems, but it's also very individual. It's written for the general reader. It's like you too can get better. And here's how, very practical. It's interesting because the US military, like the Marines, that's what they do. That's their, that's what they're, they're um, in, in not training camp, but in uh, basic training. They break people down. Uh, they yell at them incessantly and they break them down. And then they, until they get to a point where then they can build them up again. And, but from your perspective, that doesn't work long-term or it doesn't work for the betterment of the individual. I think that really what I would call that kind of approach in the military, especially high level, like Marines, what they're doing is what they're really doing is teaching their their people, they're teaching them flow. And flow is a very different thing. And it's the thing that can save your life if you're in a war. So they're not breaking people down. What they're trying to do is recreate the conditions of chaos and violence and aggression and being attacked from all sides and being essentially bombarded in ways that the brain barely can cope with. Now, the analogy for this is George Mumford. 
George Mumford is the uh, mind, was the mindfulness coach with Phil Jackson's team that went on with Michael Jordan and the late Kobe Bryant to be ridiculously successful. What he taught them, George Mumford, in mindfulness training was that no matter if there were 60,000 screaming fans, no matter if there was an incredibly aggressive opposition, that they were to stay at all times in mental flow. And they attained a kind of state where they were so connected to their teammates. They were so into the game. They were so just completely alive to their own inner movements that they didn't even hear. It didn't matter that there was an audience even because they were in flow. I think that's what the Marines are doing. They train these people to take that flow-like state out into the most dangerous circumstances in order to survive. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I have experienced flow before uh, where you are like when I was a kid, I was an athlete and I can distinctly remember um, points in time where um, I could not hear and I was so focused on what I was doing or the play that was at hand. I could not hear uh, the, 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 the crowd or or anything because I was the focus and so I was in flow and they teach that now is it's becoming and Phil Jackson was one of the uh, originators of it but they're now teaching it on, on a lot of different levels about flow about vision uh, about creating a vision of what's about to happen uh, a great one is have you ever do you ever watch the the pro golfers on the PGA tour Kevin, I'm sorry to tell you, I never watch pro golfers. Okay, well then, let me. <laughs> well, I'll fill in the blanks for you because because I think this is uh, this is what we're talking about. This is what they're trying to do. You will see them. They'll tee the ball up and then they'll stand back. They'll look at the the uh, um, fairway ahead of them. They'll look at the the nuances of it, and then they'll they'll think about the perfect swing hitting it exactly where they want to and their vision, putting this in a vision in their head. And so that when they go to address the ball, that that is kind of a replay that's already been running through their brain. And so that it will work the same way. Is that, is that kind of uh, the same thing that we're talking about? Well, that is a brilliant, brilliant way to talk about how we can take that kind of brain approach to every single thing that we do. So exactly. if you think about that from a mindfulness point of view, and the neuroscientific research on mindfulness is significant, and it shows how incredibly healthy it is for brains. Imagine this, you're thrown into a situation, and um, your goal is to stop bullying. Let's say you grew up in a bullying household, or you had bullying teachers or coaches or whatever, and you've become this bully. And you don't you're not happy with it. You don't want to do it. It's just that it's become your default neural network, which means it's your brain's go-to. Your brain thinks it's a normal way to behave. It seems to be effective. You use aggression. Uh, you put other people down and they stop bothering you, whatever it is. So, but let's say this is your boss has said to you, you know what, you, you just can't do that. You know, let's, let's say you're, you know, a, a talented, great person at work, but it's been identified that you harm other people, you've got to stop. So you say to yourself, okay, I'm in this situation, my impulse, my, my default, I want, to, I want to be mean. I want to put the person down. I want to humiliate them in, from a, in front of other people. It's going to make me look bigger. It's going to 
It's going to make me have a better position. And you say to yourself, no, I can't do that. I'm going to lose my job. I, I'm hurting people. I know it's wrong. I've got to stop. So you take a step back, just like the golfer. You take a step back from the situation and you rehearse for a moment what it is you want to do. And you rehearse compassion and you rehearse respect, especially if you're dealing with someone who has less power than you. Imagine if you're dealing with your child, for example, or if you're a teacher and you're dealing with a student, you want to lose your temper, you want to be humiliating and you're, you stop yourself and you become very mindful of what you're doing and you make a choice. And you instead, you step back into the situation and you exhibit compassionate, respectful, useful kind of behavior that helps the child or the student or the person with less power. Now, that's what we can do with every single situation in our lives. I mean, it's hard to do. I want to go back to this point about motivation. I don't want to make it sound like this kind of thing is easy because it's actually very difficult. But it's, according to research, completely doable. So if we have children going back to school in September or late August, and these kids are worried about a bullying scenario that they, you know, have already had to deal with or certain individuals or certain teachers that are humiliating and unkind and um, aggressive or coaches that are like that, you know, really what you want to do is start building up their resilience, building up their strength, getting them to understand that that person really has very little control over themselves. And every time they demonstrate these destructive behaviors, they're really actually waving a big red flag that says they're out of control. So why would you give them your power? Why, why would you give anyone who's out of control your power? You know, just let, let them choose to behave that way. That's their choice. That's their default neural network. They're putting it on display for everybody, but you can choose how you want to be and how you want to react. They, they don't have anything on you. Why is it, do you think, that we do not, that some of us anyway, do not uh, um, understand that, that we have a choice in how we behave when there are others that are behaving a certain way? How do, why is it that we don't take control over that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's, and I mean, this is why it's difficult. So think of it this way from evolution our brains are primed. We have these incredibly elaborate um, systems in our brains um, to, uh, um, I'm seeing someone making a comment about how I never watch pro golfers. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and she doesn't, she doesn't either. Oh, you don't either. Yeah, Great. she doesn't Thank either. You. Mindfulness is a game changer. And she also <laughs> says that uh, I love compassion and respect sets the empath apart from the narcissist. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? Well, here is the, um, yeah, no, so true. So we'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this, Dr. Marnie. Um, so what I was going to say is the reason why it's hard, we have these systems in our brain. One is the sympathetic nervous system. And that's kind of a big name for basically the stress response. And then the other system, and this goes to mindfulness, is the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's call that system the mindfulness system, the choice system, the calm system. Um, sometimes neuroscientists refer to it as rest and digest. It's when the body is safe and calm and the brain is safe and calm. So then you, you're in a much better position to choose. But what happens in a stressful situation when the brain feels threatened, it is completely geared to get you out of there. So that's, that's flight. 
it it has you your muscles your brain your vision your you name it cortisol and adrenaline get pumped out and it's because your your brain is going okay we're in danger we got to get out of here let's get ready to run we're going to run really fast because the brain interprets everything like a predator and then the other thing it says is okay you know put up your put up your dukes let's fight we're going to fight this predator and we're going to win because that's what we do. So you can see the aggressive, threatening, intimidating, bullying behaviors, right? And then the other one, of course, is freeze. It's like, if I just go completely still, the um, wild animal won't notice that I'm in the grass. I'm going to blend in. I'm going to become frozen. So it's really hard to stop evolution. It's like, you know, our brains are geared to behave this way. And for us to just go, oh, I'm just going to be really zen and I'm just going to be so mindful and I'm going to make a choice about how I respond. I'm going to I'm going to use a healthy emotion concept. Well, that's great in a calm situation, in a heated up, you know, hot cognition situation. That is really hard to do. And that's why most of us are not the Dalai Lama. We are reactive. We regret how we behaved. We are sorry. We're guilty. We're this, we're that, because we are so imperfect in that way. And all of us are. I, I make the mistake, you know, who hasn't lost their temper? Who hasn't, you know, behaved in ways they regret and had to say sorry? All of us. We need to acknowledge the fight or flight response of consciously not feeling like yes. Yes, absolutely true. No, Dr. Marnie is completely on side. She and I can sit down together and have tea and not watch professional golf and have well, a conversation. I'll, I'll tell you what, Dr. Marnie, if you want to give me your email address and put it, you can put it into the chat and then I'll send you the link and you can come on the show if you want to. That obviously would be great. Um, but, I don't think people can hear enough about this. It's so incredibly important. So imagine empowering our children. So we say to our kids, and you can't just teach it in a workshop. It can't just be one afternoon or one day or something like that. It has to be as frequently as we teach math, as frequently as we teach English or Spanish or any of the things we're teaching. Every single day, we need to teach them that they are the, they have the captain of their own ship up in their head, and they can make really good decisions, really mindful decisions about what they want to do, what they want to say, how they want to behave. And, you know, I think it's a great thing to teach kids from an early age that they will never read a job description. They will never see a, a career path that asks them if they are really good at bullying. What they will find is uh, careers, all kinds of careers, asking them if they have lots of empathy. Because empathy is a quality that is sought after in the workplace. It makes your personal life incredibly happier and healthier, and it makes your professional life um happier and healthier so you know i think that this is the this is the game changer this is what we need to be doing and adults you know adults have to understand that they are the role models they have to if they want children to be non-bullying adults have to role model empathy and compassion and kindness and that's when we're going to see children not you know bullying one another why is it that some people naturally have empathy and some it, it appears that they naturally have empathy, empathy, and other people do not. Is is there? Is it because of how our brains are wired that that you, we act certain ways, and that's one of them, I think. Well, the brain actually all brains, and it's it's a critical piece for sur survival. All human brains are wired for empathy. 
When a baby is born within anywhere from 40 minutes on, the adults will be able to observe the baby mimicking the adult behavior. So if an adult is smiling, the adult is grimacing, the adult is doing various things, as soon as a, an infant, as soon as a young child has the capacity, the body control, the facial expression control to mimic, they mimic. So really, it's a, it's a tough thing, a tough observation, but there really is a big problem in our society that babies are born wired for empathy. And by the time they get into the school system, uh, quite a number of children uh, have lost that natural empathic, caring, um, trying to walk in someone else's shoes, trying to understand why they are the way they are. It's gotten blunted and it's gotten harmed. And I think one of the most important things we can do for our kids is, you know, if they've come from a really tough background, like Maybe both their parents have to work. Maybe their parents are suffering from mental health issues or um, there's been, you know, jail time in the family or substance abuse or poverty. I mean, kids grow up in very difficult circumstances sometimes. And if our school system was geared to say, okay, you know, we are the big intervention. We get these kids for most of the day from the age of four and five on. We have got eight hours to make a huge difference in every single kid's life by showing them an alternative. That is really where we're going to see healthy change. And obviously families need more support and help. If, they are, if, if a child is bullying at school, that child is screaming out for help. There's something wrong. And instead of getting in trouble for that behavior, the adults should be on high alert to get support for the family. They need to find out what's going on and they need to start helping that child and helping that child's family. And that's really going to save, you know, it seems people instantly think, oh, how could we do that? That's so expensive. Well, I'm telling you, if we've got the money in our society for massive uh, chronic health issues in midlife, if we've got the money for substance abuse, if we've got the money for enormous jail sentences. If we have the money for mental health issues and criminality, surely we have money to intervene early in kids' lives to stop them from going down those unhealthy paths. You know, years ago, uh, because I'm, I'm, I've been around a while now, and at one time it was not like, it, it wasn't the daycare generation. Now we are very much in, you know, there was, there was a time when both both parents did not need to work full time. Uh, they could have relatives uh, take care of the of the kids for a little bit, but then but then everybody had to go to work in order to make ends meet and stuff. And the gener and the daycare generation was born. Um, has the daycare and I, I understand that most of the daycares are doing the best that they can, and the people that are there are doing the best that they can. But a daycare doesn't doesn't uh, take the place of a mom or a dad or a grandparent that is watching them. Uh, did, have you found that, that that has changed things that has changed children over time? The fact that they have to go to daycare. Well, you know, in, in older civilizations, it's referred to as allo parenting. Allo parenting was very common. The community would raise the children because the parents had so much to do. You know, mums were out there, you know, growing plants, making clothes, supporting, you know, the, the safety of the community, building things, making baskets, cleaning things, getting water. You know, they were working and some people would be designated to care for the children. So allo parenting or daycare isn't, um, isn't sort of a, a new, new phenomenon. Now, 
I think that both parents working is really challenging. And the fact that financially it's, it's kind of an imposition. I mean, if a parent, if a mother or a father wants to stay home, like you said, it's pretty hard to do because no one can afford that anymore. It's, it's like when women started to go into the workplace, everybody started to get a half salary. And uh, so, you know, whereas one salary used to run a household, now it takes two salaries, which that kind of begs a lot of complicated economic questions. But um, it does. You know, I think I, I personally, my kids were in daycare and I learned a lot as a parent from the daycare workers because they were professionals. They were certified. They had knowledge. And, you know, I'd never been a parent before. And so some of my default things I might have done based on the way I was raised, they were able to say, you know, we would advise or this is what we think or this is what we learned. And I found it really helpful. Um, but, you know, if your child is at daycare and then comes home, to utterly devoted, caring, loving parents who shower attention on them. Um, I think that's that can be a healthy model. Little ones love the company of other little ones and they grow and they learn a ton in those environments. Um, that said, you know, kids that are raised at home, they have lots of wonderful things too. I think it depends a lot on the family. I do think though that the stresses that households are under, the financial pressures, the both parents having to work, you know, it's the the division between families where we don't all live, you know, with our, our extended family. All those things are very hard, modern stressors. I agree. It's, it makes it very difficult, especially when you are a blended family and you might be into the second or third marriage and you might have four or five kids that are by three different <laughs> combinations of people. Then you're all trying to make it work into a household. Um, and, and I think that we spend a lot of time and this is why your book is important. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to, uh, make enough money to live and stuff. And, and we spend a lot of time feeding food, but we don't spend a lot of time nurturing people and working towards helping them and their brains work. Because from what you're telling me, you can have an actual real effect in how that brain is wired by how you talk to and treat that individual. Absolutely. So, you know, I really, I focus on the research for the bullied brain part of the book, but that's only half the book. The subtitle really says it all. And the subtitle is heal your scars and restore your health. And the real challenge of scars, neurological scars on the brain that can come from bullying and abuse is that they're invisible. So we tend to ignore them. You know, we are people who are very visual and when we can't see something, we actually forget about it. So funnily enough, we forget about our own brains. We don't think about the scars that we might be carrying around in our brains and we don't think about how much it's impacting our lives in a negative way, holding us back. So I really did a deep dive into the research on trying to figure out what the doctors and the scientists and the the neurobiologists and the neuroscientists, what do they see when they look on brain scans? And what do they see if we practice certain things to get ourselves better? And really the news is pretty exciting. It's empowering and it's inspiring because we have, just like with our body, our brains are incredibly adept at repair and at recovery. So if you practice, and it's inexpensive. So the kinds of things that you can do to make your brain much healthier, and of course I go you know, into all the research and, and 
practical strategies and applications and how to do it. But basically, writ large, um, how do you heal your scars and restore your health? Well, it's things like mindfulness. Mindfulness meditation practice works wonders on a health, on having a healthy brain, on healing and fixing harm done to the brain. Another huge one is aerobic fitness. Aerobic fitness is amazing at making your brain resilient. It prevents the damaging force of toxic stressors and it stress, and it also um, can heal the damages and the ravages from toxic or chronic stress on the brain. So aerobic fitness is really big. And then I, I do a whole section on empathic training as well, how to, how to learn how to listen empathically, because the more we light up that empathy network in our brains, the more we um, attain health and happiness and high performance. Do you find that uh, um, intuition is it comes from the brain or does that come from somewhere else? I'm just. Well, you know, the thing is we, we have, there's this wonderful neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio and he has written really like important and does important research on the fact that we talk about our brain as if it's separate from our body. And he traces this back to uh, Rene Descartes, who was a, a philosopher, 17th, 18th century philosopher. And, He's famous, Descartes, for saying, um, I think, therefore I am. So oh, when he, you remember that. So when he, yes. when he made that big pronouncement, somehow it really like, we just kind of bought into that in a big way, humanity. And so we tend to think about our brain and body as if they're these completely separate entities. Well, they're not. They're inextricably entwined. Everything that you do that you think is rational Damasio demonstrates is actually profoundly emotional and the emotions and the bodily reactions and the way. The, so he does these really interesting research um, projects into. Um, oh, like it, he uses card games and gambling and different things like that to show because he has so many patients where um, the emotional part of their brain gets damaged. So they, you know, neuroscientists often study people who have hurt brains um, because that allows them to see what how it impacts their lives. And people that have the emotional part of their brains badly damaged can't make rational decisions. So this is where he started to go, okay, let me start looking at normal brains and let me look at how the body reacts and how it shapes the way the brain decides to behave. And anyway, in other words, intuition, it's in the brain, it's in the body, it's it's in our cells, it's all entwined. Interesting. Interesting. I wanted to ask you because we were talking about the brain and you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest issues that we have today is it seems like young men with anger issues that then they go and they pick up a weapon. Do you? And then they go and, and, and cause havoc. Uh, this is an important piece of your research, I think in, into how to get, to understand what's going on in a young man's brain that that is causing him to lose empathy for other people that that so much so that that he'll walk into he, he's capable of walking into a grocery store and there can be a 78 year old woman who's standing there at the checkouts and he he would shoot her you know, I, I, there's a lack of empathy. There's a lack of, of humanity. Uh, what causes that in the brain and can it be repaired? 
Well, everything can be repaired in the brain. Like it, it's just amazing. It's miraculous at repair. That said, imagine young people today who are, so as I look at in the book, adult abuse and bullying is normalized in our society. If a child or a young adult uh, reports adult bullying, oftentimes they're blamed for it themselves. We create these kind of psychotic conditions in our young people. And then we say to ourselves, why are they so crazy? Well, they're crazy because we made them crazy. So everything that young people do, unfortunately for us adults, is on us. We've created the conditions for those types of behaviors. I mean, just basic things. Kids grow up put in front far too often of a screen. They are not getting the adult um, interaction that they need. You know, when, when it was thought that children could learn multiple languages, if you just stuck them in front of a program, people tried to do that. You know, that, that whole idea of like, oh, I'm gonna t the child will be taught a language by a program. Well, it doesn't work that way. Children, babies don't learn language from machines. They only learn them from other humans. And so, you know, for parents, one of the greatest things parents can do is really as much as humanly possible, restrict screen time for their children. And this is not to say TV is bad or movies are bad or anything like, you know, like that. I'm, but the research shows little ones, don't, don't put them in front of screens, keep them away. And then as they get older, keep them away from just this normalizing of extreme violence 24 seven. I mean, if kids were watching shows about gardening, we might have young men going out and planting roses. The kids are watching shows about people shooting other people 24 seven. Those young people's brains normalize aggressive shooting behavior that the, the hero of the show is a punisher is someone who's taking vengeance who who's being hurt in some way and is gonna is gonna go out there and and give payback i mean look at these models that it's it's just hammered into them video games it's hammered into them to 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 act this way but you know there's a, a ton of kids a ton of boys in particular who play video games and do not demonstrate any kinds of behaviors like that my right. guess would be that those boys come from very attached parents, very caring households, awesome teachers who respect and care about them and want them to fulfill their potential, amazing sports coaches with the same. These are not kids that have been abused. A child who's being bullied or abused by the adults in positions of trust and authority over them, they are going to have anger management issues. So what you're telling me then is using the TV as a babysitter is not a good idea. No, it's, it's really not. The uh, American Pediatric uh, Association has come out very strongly saying, you know, prior to the age of two, they shouldn't ever be in front of a screen. Whereas, you know, in uh, going back to what you were saying, parents in our world where they, they, they feel like young people feel like if they're not looking at their phone, they're somehow missing key information and they're going to get left behind. That's been hammered into them since they were day one on the planet and they don't know any different. But, you know, the more parents can try and sort of rebel, rebel against society just because everybody has a phone and they're glued to it doesn't mean you do. You can actually look at your child, gaze at your child, talk to your child. That baby's brain, that child's brain as they grow up is absolutely riveted on the adults in their lives. They learn everything from them. So if we have problems in our youth populations, sorry, it's a big adult problem. 
and and I think the evidence bears that out when you start looking at the family situations of some of these young men and what it was like and what their family situation was like that the signs almost inevitably are there that that this this person was that all all of what you just said was in place and it was just waiting for a trigger and the trigger came and 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 there you are so i'm hopeful that that somebody will take a, a look at this will buy your book the bullied brain and be able to figure out in their own in their own family situation because not every every well let me put it this way every family situation to some degree is dysfunctional and and if you are responsible for the health and welfare of a small child then this would help you understand things to do and what not to do because i have a relative they used the TV. They had a nice 64-inch screen TV. They used that as a babysitter. They would plug in a, a movie, and the, and the kid would watch a movie. But if developmentally, she did not talk very, because they didn't talk to her. The TV was talking to her, and she couldn't learn to talk because of the TV. Wasn't teaching her that, and they weren't teaching her that. Is that is that true? Well, I mean, a the research that I've read said kids, I mean, it's very clear. Children don't learn language from machines, including the television, including any machine. They learn language from the caring adults in their world. And you might, you might take that throughout life. Children learn empathy from the caring adults in their world. And that, you know, going back to kids go to school from, you know, eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. So, if parents are loving and caring and connected to them and teaching them things, they still have a huge gap of the day where they are with other adults. And those adults have to learn. Our teachers and our coaches, our Boy Scout leaders, our ministers in churches, if they're doing Sunday school, every single adult has to be caring and empathic because the ones that aren't, it can be a very small percentage do an amazing amount of damage. They can really single-handedly hurt children's brains. And that's what we have to, as a society, come together and ensure that instead of allowing that adult and enabling them and covering up for them and protecting them, we actually address it. We rehabilitate their brain. We give them the time to get better because it's like being an addict. If they're addicted to alcohol or drugs, we would not let them have access to children. Same thing if they are addicted to bullying, abusive behaviors. They should not have access to children until they can get better. That's what really has to change. And it's not impossible. We are starting, I think, as a society to move in that direction, to understand that mental health issues, that health issues, substance abuse, criminal criminal behaviors, they're all correlated with adult abuse. And so if we stop the abuse, and we stop the adult bullying, we will change as a society for the better. It's exciting. It can really be exciting if we were to follow through and do that, because that, that, that would change everything. You know, it's just a matter of education. It's like, Going back, and this is what I didn't use as the analogy in my TEDx talk on this issue, is, you know, back in the day, I think you and I talked about this before, Kevin, I grew up, you probably grew up, where smoking was totally normalized. 
everybody smoked. Your parents smoked, your teacher smoked. There was a designated place at your high school in case you wanted to have a cigarette. They just are totally trying to help you out there. Your doctor would be smoking while he wrote you a prescription, right? We all thought smoking was fine. Then x-rays showed us the blackening tar, the cancerous tar in the lungs. And everybody went, okay, maybe smoking isn't quite as cool or tough or amazing as I thought it was. And it's really hard to stop, super hard to stop, but people can stop. And they did stop. And we stopped teaching kids that smoking was normal. And we stopped adults from poisoning children with secondhand smoke. I think we can do exactly the same thing with bullying and abuse. We can now see on brain scans. We can look at those brain scans and we can see the damage that bullying and abuse do to brains. So let's stop doing it. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you, since you brought up smoking, does smoking change your brain? Well, gosh, that's actually an interesting question. Let me, I mean, my guess is when you become addicted to cigarettes and uh, um, because I was, hi, my name is Kevin and I'm, I'm addicted to cigarettes and hi, Kevin. No, it's um, I, started smoking my dad well and you said it correctly it was environmental my grandfather smoked my dad smoked he smoked when and in those days not only did we not have seat belts in the car but uh, you could smoke um so he would smoke and uh and we would get secondhand smoke and all of that um our whole lives but it became an attractive thing for me in high school to be able to I'm cool. I can, I smoke and, and stuff like that. Matter of fact, I almost got kicked off the baseball team because I got caught smoking one time. So, but then I, I, so I grew up and I smoked until I was 35, caught pneumonia and then quit. And, uh, um, and which was the hardest thing to do, uh, by the way, um, because you got to change, you got to change your brain. And for those of you who that do not, that do not understand how it is when you're a smoker, let me explain. Uh, we'll start when you wake up. Um, you wake up and you go, I think I need to have a cup of coffee. Well, with that cup of coffee, it's going to be a cigarette. Or you're going to have a cigarette while you make the coffee. And then and in the in the olden days when you could smoke in the house. Uh, now you got to go outside and smoke, and which makes it a little bit more difficult. But every pleasurable thing in your life, you think of having a cigarette along with it. And it's relentless. It lasts all day. It's every day. It's every moment. It's everything that you like. You want to smoke. So you quite literally have to change how your brain accepts that information and processes it so that you don't want to smoke anymore. Is it? How do you do that? You know, you've just described in perfect detail the hard work of changing your neural networks. It's hard work, but... Every single time you, and this is in mindfulness again, think of it this way, you create space in mindfulness between stimulus, cup of coffee, and response. I'm going to have a cigarette or I'm not. And it's that moment where you make a choice so that you're not living your life in a mindless habit. You're not mindless. You're not brainless. You are mindful and brainful, right? You're making a decision Because you and learning to separate those two things out, that is the key. And that's why these habits 
to break these habits are hard, but they can be done. And smoking, as we know in the research, is one of the hardest ones. But, you know, when you say, does smoking hurt the brain? Well, we need oxygen in our brain. This is why aerobic fitness is one of the good ones, because it pumps oxygenated blood up into the brain. Well, if you're smoking, you're messing your whole oxygen system up. So I imagine it's not good for your brain. No, because you're, you're, you're actually pumping chemicals into your brain. Yeah. And it's getting stimulated in ways that are unnatural. And, you know, you're, yeah, I'm, I, I've never looked it up. It's not something that I, I never thought of it. It's a really good question just to have like a kind of a clear research answer for like what specifically does smoking do? Because what's so fascinating with these brain scans is, you know, with non-invasive technology, the neuroscientists can look at what certain types of behaviors, what certain types of habits, what they do to the brain, they can actually see it now. And it's that visible evidence that I'm hoping helps people get much more, you know, informed about, about harm to the brain through bullying and abuse. And I, I couldn't agree more. I'm real hopeful for your work that, that number one, that people will go buy your book and and because they can learn a lot about their brain the 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 one thing that we don't talk about much um and yet you know it 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 amazes me after the last time that we talked i started thinking about um yeah as i was watching tv and i was watching sports and and stuff and there's something called the uh, mma and they used to be boxing and it's the entire idea behind that was to knock somebody out and 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 to dam basically to damage their brain, um, yeah. we still do that as a culture. It's just like cigarette smoking. We all agree cigarette smoking can kill you. It's killed my brother. It killed my father, and uh, and so it can kill you. Yet you can go to any convenience store in the country and buy it if you're over twenty one years of age. I know it's, it's the same thing. You can go to any store in the country and buy a gun. It's like, and then we're, we're, we're saying to ourselves, how come young people are behaving this way? It's like, well, we enable these types of behaviors. We, we normalize it. We, we make it as simple as just going to a regular store. And you know, what was interesting to me is um, when we got the knowledge about how much smoking costs the system, like in the, you know, can you imagine how expensive cancer is? It costs the system a massive amount of money. And it also is, you know, destroys people's lives, shortened lifespan, blah, blah. You know, the government started to intervene and they started to get people educated. And they started to make people have to see, if you want to buy these cigarettes, here's here's a mindful intervention. Let's give you a photograph, a, an x-ray image of destroyed lungs or, or face or throat. If you want that, go ahead. Uh, we just want you to have that information. And um, I don't understand why they have not done the same thing with bullying and abuse, where they make it very clear to all adults, all kids, that if someone does X, Y, and Z, they don't have to touch your body. It can be cyberbullying. Cyber it can be put downs. It can be yelling in your face. It can be swearing, aggressive, threatening. It can be neglect. They don't speak to you. They emotionally act like you're not there and make you feel worthless. It can be social, relational. They don't invite you or they they don't tell you there's a meeting, all these kinds of uh, aggressions, they all do harm to the brain. It can be seen on brain scans. We need to change as a culture and really the government should be leading the way. They should be integrating all kinds of brain health curriculum into our schools. Why aren't they doing that? 
teachers would love to learn about the brain. Coaches, coaches could improve their athletes' performance enormously by learning about the brain. They yep. want it. Everybody wants that knowledge. But you know, until until the government really gets behind this and understands that it's a, a massive cost. You know, the research was clear in the late 1990s that there's a correlation, a direct correlation between childhood abuse and midlife chronic disease and shortened lifespan. Yep. Why don't we do something about that? Come on. Because there's no money in it. <laughs> Quite there's frankly. so much money. Oh, my God, Kevin, they would save gazillions of dollars in prisons, um, rehab for drug abuse, everything. It's everything. Yeah, but nobody makes money on it. They would save the money, but you know what I'm saying? It's it's like it's like the same reason why the pharmaceutical companies don't uh, they they don't believe in uh, natural medicine because they want to sell you pharmaceuticals. Well, you know what? That is exactly why I wrote the book because the book is a way for everyone to make the decision for themselves. The, if the government's not going to do it, if the schools aren't going to teach you and your coach doesn't know anything, your parents don't know anything about your brain, guess what? You can get it strong, high-performing, and better and ch totally change your life in positive, healthy ways by just doing basic, like having the basic knowledge and doing the exercises. And, uh, and if they want to get the book, they can go just about anywhere, right? Yeah, it's available all over the place. But if people want to go to my website, they can go to it's bulliedbrain.com. And there's a page on the website that tells you all the different places you can get the book. But obviously, it's on Amazon. And if, if they get it off Amazon, then they can write me a review, which I would love to read and appreciate. Very good. So get the book on Amazon and then write a review after you read it. And then and then and you, after you fixed your brain and you'll be and you'll be fine. <laughs> Because that's what that's you know that is a something that if you can do that, which according to your research we can, that would be so helpful to us if we could get people to have a little bit more empathy, to care for one another a little bit more, to not want to shoot each other. That would that would be very nice, quite frankly. It's I think we're time. I think I think the time is nigh. It's we're ready. Our society is at very much a tipping point. And I, I honestly believe that we are going to make this change. The way I describe it in the book is I say that we need to exit the bullying abuse paradigm. We need to exit the bullying abuse framework and enter into a new neuro paradigm. In other words, one that's informed by our brains, that doesn't ignore our brains. That's brilliant. And that's true. So... I want to thank you for coming here, Jennifer, again. And uh, we, I always have a good time talking with you. So when, can we do this again sometime? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was great to talk with you as always. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Go to her website, which, of course, is? Bulliedbrain.com. Bulliedbrain.com. Pick up the book and, uh, and not only pick it up, read it. And, and, and then act on it, uh, bulliedbrain.com. And if you have somebody in your life who is an active bully, please get them to stop. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't help anybody. Um, and if you are a bully, stop it. You should be ashamed of yourself. So, so well, you know what, one of the things I want bullies to know is, you know, normally they vast majority, they come by it. Honestly, it was done to them and thus they do it. It's their yeah. brain. Their brain got sculpted that way. Usually in their formative years, the exciting news is 
bullies can change their brain and they need to, and they need to quick because every time they behave that way, they're damaging their own brain even more. Exactly. And what we don't want is the seven generation rule to come into effect somewhere. Somebody has to break the pattern Exactly, and it needs to be you or somebody that you know, buy the book for them. If you know somebody that likes to be a bully, buy the book for them, they, and the, that'll, that'll help them. So, uh, again, Jennifer, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? No, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It was great to talk. It, and, and I learn so much every time we talk, and the next time will be no different, I'm sure. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And go get the book, The Bullied Brain. Um, it, it will help you. It'll help your family. So stay there. I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.